Welcome to Third Man Walking. Earlier this week, I had a thought that I'd somehow never had before. The vast majority of opponents I face in poker are of well above average intelligence. Now, what constitutes intelligence is a complicated topic that I'm not really equipped to address. Maybe it's problematic to label the group of opponents I face in the fairly big poker games I play highly intelligent, since many of them have significant amounts of disposable income and I could just be confusing indicators of class with indicators of intelligence. So instead, maybe I should just say informally that they're smart and seem significantly smarter than many people you'd meet in other walks of life. And even if you could somehow control for wealth, it makes sense to me that poker players, even not so great ones, would be smart. Poker is a game that, by and large, attracts smart people who like the mental challenge it presents. My job as a professional poker player is to beat these smart people at this mentally challenging game. So if my opponents are mostly smart, that must make me really smart, right? Well, no, not necessarily. And I think there may even be cases in poker where the pros, the ones making money, are the least intelligent people at the table. A few months ago, the poker player Dan Zak tweeted a story about playing against a pro in a big game at Commerce Casino here in Los Angeles. The player was up a bunch of money for the day, and he started talking about how much money he was making and how he was smarter than his opponents. One of those opponents, a lawyer, offered to bet the pro $100,000 that he didn't have the highest IQ at the table. The pro initially said the rest of the table surely wouldn't take IQ tests, but everyone agreed to do so if there was a $100,000 bet between the two players. The pro refused the bet, at which point the lawyer offered a series of bets more favorable to the pro, all of which the pro refused, culminating in the lawyer offering a $200,000 bet that the pro had the lowest IQ at the table. The pro declined the bet and stopped bragging. So anyway, here's a question. If the pros aren't actually the smartest people in the room, what makes the recreational players play worse poker than we do? Well, most obviously, recs don't have the experience we do. If they play one day a week and we play five, we're going to have a natural advantage. Also, and this is important, their primary motivation isn't always to play great poker. If a smart recreational player tells you about a hand they played, they might say, I raised with ace-nine offsuit and the small blind re-raised and I know ace-nine is supposed to be a fold, but he'd been re-raising a lot and I wanted to punish him so I called. They'll know what the right play is and then they'll do something else anyway. My opponents sometimes follow the drama of the moment like this or they play hands they shouldn't because they're bored or they just want to gamble. There's nothing wrong with these things, but every time they do them, my edge increases. The most important reason I'm able to win, though, is that I know things my opponents don't know. That is, I come to the poker table knowing things, mostly things I've studied away from the table. Maybe in some ways this sounds like a strange thing for me to highlight here. If you've been listening to Third Man Walking for a while, you know that one of my mantras is, we don't know anything. There's very little certainty in poker. As I've said before, once an opponent's level of ability crosses a low threshold of competence, it's impossible to definitively deny that they're a big winner, even if almost every indicator suggests they aren't. If a player who clears this low bar makes a play that looks weird to me, I might suspect it's a bad play, but I don't always know that's the case. What if they know their opponent better than I do? What if there's some history there that I'm unaware of? So, 
There are no absolutes in poker. And in some sense, there is no unassailable body of knowledge required to do well. In the right context, almost any move could be good. So at a local level, we really don't know anything. And when we watch someone else play, we don't really know what we're seeing. This is actually one of the most beautiful things about poker. And to get a little solipsistic for a second, it's one of the things I like most about continuing to make this podcast, that I can honestly tell you, the listener, so many things I think about poker and even tell you details of the way I play hands. But in the end, you will never really see me. You will only be able to see flickers of me through the fog. This game shows so many things about those who play it, but it never shows the complete picture. Poker is a game of reasoning, and on some level it rewards players who are better than others at reasoning, at assessing a situation and figuring out the best possible move. And the number of ways you can outthink your opponent is potentially enormous, because, again, there are no absolutes. For example, let's say you're in the cutoff seat with pocket queens. The -the under-the-gun player limps, and it folds to you. You limp also which obviously is not the conventional play. Now it folds to the big blind, who raises to four big blinds. The under the gun player calls, and you call too, which again is not conventional. So, have you made a bad play? Well, let's consider what's called the expanding brain meme, or the galaxy brain meme. That meme that shows a series of vertical panels with a brain getting more luminous as our takes get better, ironically or not. On the top tier of the meme, yes, you've played your hand idiotically. You don't overlimp queens and then call against a four big blind open. That's ridiculous. But let's proceed down to the next tier of the meme. Here it's unclear whether you've played your hand well or not, because there's so much specific information I haven't provided. What if the under the gun player is horrible post flop and usually folds once her limps get raised? What if the big blind only ever raises pre flop with pocket aces or pocket kings? In such a very specific scenario, maybe, just maybe, playing pocket queens as we have might be the correct play. Probably not, but maybe, and shouldn't we think about that? Just mindlessly doing something without considering all the information isn't good poker, surely. Right? We don't know anything. We've discussed this on the podcast before. But it's possible to go too far with this idea. Now let's go down another tier on the meme, and here our brain is getting quite shiny. On this tier, we don't mindlessly make the conventional plays. But, and this is important, we recognize that poker is too complex to play while completely making things up as we go, and we rely on math and precedent to guide our decisions. So, let's return to our pocket queens example. What if the the under-the-gun player will often fold to raises after limping, but not always? Well, now we should consider raising, which every chart will tell us we should do anyway. Raising is clearly profitable. Certainly, it's the more profitable play in a vacuum. So, unless we're dead certain of our read, and a bit of experience in poker will tell us that we should be suspicious of anything we're dead certain about, raising is going to be a lot simpler than limping and calling. And that's not the only advantage of raising. If we study poker, raising with our pocket queens will make later betting rounds simpler, because they're familiar, and because they're more similar to the way poker is traditionally modeled. And so now you might be thinking, gosh, Charlie, you're telling us we should raise preflop when we have pocket queens? What a concept. And I agree. It's obvious. But I see smart people not make the obvious play quite a lot. And these counterintuitive plays end up costing them money not only when they make them, but also later in the hand. There's a humility in often doing the obvious thing. 
We might make an obvious play because it's what the solver recommends or it's what the brightest poker minds do. And in doing so ourselves, we're saying that we do not believe we're smarter than the solver or than the brightest poker minds. We acknowledge that just learning the mechanics and applying them is likely to be more profitable in many situations than the strategy we make up on the fly. There's also an element of efficiency to working primarily on this third tier. No matter how much we learn the mechanics, difficult decisions will arise in poker, and so when we reach one, we want to have played the hand to this point in a way that's basically comprehensible to us, so we have some idea what to do next. We also want to save our mental energy to deal with the difficult spot. No poker player plays their entire game on one tier of this expanding brain meme. But the big difference between the way I play poker and the way some smart recreational players play is that they're operating mostly on the second tier and I'm mostly on the third. Poker is just too complex to reason through everything with no guideposts, so I mostly stick to the trail and move off it only as needed, or I guess when I make a mistake. It is December 5th, and today I want to tell you about a 5-10-20 session I played yesterday at the bike. I show up to the casino at about 11 because I can see that there's a 5-10-20 game running, and when I arrive, it's pretty obvious that the game has run overnight, which is usually great for the players showing up in the morning. It usually means that there are players who are stuck, or the game is really good, or both. So I take a seat and start playing some very big pots right away. In this first one, it's a $50 bomb pot, which we're doing for every dealer change. And I have queen jack offsuit on the button. There are six players, so about 295 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes queen jack seven with the queen and jack of clubs. So I have top two pair. It checks to the low jack who bets 125. The cutoff, who is a very, very loose player, makes the call, and I raise to $525 on the button. It folds back to the caller, that is, the very loose player in the cutoff, who I'm going to tangle with a lot today, and he jams for about $3,500 effective. So not much to do here but make the call, I don't think. I mean, I don't think there's any circumstance really in which I would be folding this hand to this player. But especially not in this one, since he just called the bet of 125, it doesn't really look like he has something really strong and whatever, I have top two pair. So I make the call. He shows ace nine of clubs and unfortunately the turn and river both run out clubs. So he makes the nut flush. My top two pair go down the drain and within about 20 minutes, I'm stuck $4,000. It doesn't feel good. I've been in the midst of a pretty nasty downswing. And so it's unfortunate to not have this hand hold in an $8,000 pot. About 10 minutes later, I pick up pocket aces on the button. However, happy to see that I've reloaded for $4,000 and I raised to 60. I'm also happy to see that the good German pro in the big blind, that is the second blind, re-raises to $250. Folds back around to me, and I'm hoping I look really tilted here, and I make the 4-bet to $600 with my pocket aces, and he calls. So 12-20 already in this pot heading to the flop, which comes jack-9-7 rainbow. 
Not my favorite flop because my opponent probably has every combination of pocket jacks and pocket nines that would play this way. He might also have pocket sevens. I could have pocket jacks here maybe, but I would just call a three bet with pocket jacks some of the time. I would never have pocket nines or pocket sevens. I still do have aces, of course, and can hope that my opponent has any number of other hands. So I'm kind of torn when he checks to me about whether to bet. And if if I do bet what size to use, I end up checking and I check with the solver later and it says basically that I can bet small, I can bet big, or I can check all three lines are fine. I end up checking in this case. And so there's still 1220 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the ace of diamonds. So now two diamonds out there, I have basically the nuts with top set of aces. Obviously 10-8 makes a straight, but neither of us really have that because it's a four bet pot. So he checks to me again, which is disappointing. I would think that most of his combos of sets would bet on this turn, but he does not. I end up betting 600, so a little less than half pot. Uh, fortunately, he makes the call. So now 2420 in the pot heading to the river, which is an offsuit deuce. He checks, and I have a little less than 2800 back. And I'm trying to find a case for uh, betting smaller here. Like, would I ever just like bet small with ace king here or something like that? And I think probably not. So I think I want to check a lot. And when I bet, I mostly want to bet big. So I do go all in. And I don't really know what he can have to call me. Because like I said, I think that most of his sets play differently up to this point. But uh, much to my delight, he goes into the tank, says some swear words, and then starts talking about how he's very strong and is not sure whether he can fold this hand. He eventually does make the call. I table my hand and obviously I win and I don't see what he had. But it certainly seems like he slow played a set maybe or ace jack and I got very lucky with the ace on the turn. So it's about 1130 at this point. I've already lost an $8,000 pot and won an $8,000 pot. Feeling pretty good about having made the recovery and uh, feeling very awake despite not having had any breakfast or caffeine yet today. Only been at the casino for about a half hour and uh, already played two of the biggest pots I've played this month. So I've got new life in this game. Also have a very big stack in front of me right now. And in this next hand, I raise to $60 with Ace-King under the gun. I get three calls from the button, the small blind, and our very loose player in the straddle. And so there's about 250 in the pot heading to the flop. Uh, I miss, I don't do, I do the math wrong in my head. And I think there's 290, but there's 250. And it comes King-Queen-4, Rainbow. It checks to me and I bet $125. And the button who I have at least a small sample with and who in my mind usually plays pretty reasonably raises to $485. Now, both the other two players, the small blind and the straddle, cold call. So now it's back on me with ace king on king queen four. And this is super weird because... I don't know what the button is doing. The only hands that she should have that really makes sense to me as raises are king queen and pocket fours. 
And I think maybe she's getting a little out of line with Jack 10. But that even seems a little unlikely to me because the player in the straddle in particular is so loose and so apt to continue with all kinds of hands here that I don't know that having any real bluffs makes sense. And I'm also sneakily pretty close to the bottom of my range here. I don't even know if I would bet King Jack suited four ways. Maybe in this exact hand I would because the very loose player is still in it, but often I think I would check. So Ace-King is one of the worst hands I'm going to be betting with. I'm going to be betting sets and King-Queen here quite a lot and mostly also generally be checking. So I just go ahead and fold. Uh, so the board runs out with a couple of bricks. The three players left in the hand check it down. And the button shows queen three of spades for a middle pair with a three kicker, which she called with preflop and then raised on the flop. The very loose player in the straddle shows king three of clubs, which doesn't surprise me at all. And the small blind shows some sort of suited queen and folds. And this is when I'm like, like I knew this was a pretty good game, but this is when I was like, wow. I mean, lock the doors. <laughs> We've got some interesting stuff happening here. I'm really shocked by what the button was doing in this hand. Obviously, I folded the best hand, but I'm not too concerned about that. And uh, at this point, I'm just very excited about playing in this game and hoping to make some value hands because some some stuff is going down here. So in this uh, next big hand, I have Ace-King yet again. I have Ace-King a lot on this particular day. There are two limps, including the extremely loose player we have position on. I raise to 130 with ace-king offsuit in the hijack. The cutoff calls, and so does the second limper. So we're going three ways to a flop. There's 440 in there, and it comes ace-king-jack rainbow. So good flop. Checks to me. I bet $175. The cutoff calls. The limper now goes all in for $1,700. And the cutoff, of course, still in this hand, but she has less than that. So I go all in, the cutoff folds, and the board runs out for ace. And so I have top full house, obviously, and tape on my hand. Of course, it's good. My opponent shows an ace and mucks. So now I'm up pretty significantly. And in this next hand, I pick up ace-king yet again, and the very loose player again limps. So I make it 100 in the cutoff, and he calls. So now heads up to a flop, and it comes 9-8-3 rainbow. Nothing to write home about with my ace-king, so he checks, and I check it back. Turn is a 4, so now 9-8-3-4. There's 230 in the pot. I have ace-king, and my opponent bets $175. So I think he's going to have a wide variety of straight draws and other bluffs. And I have a pretty good bluff catcher with ace high, so I make the call. So now 580 in the pot. And the river is an offsuit eight. Definitely one of the better rivers that is not an ace or a king. In that, I think a lot of his pairs are going to have to slow down here. I don't know if he can go crazy here betting, you know, pocket fives or a four or something like that. But he does bet again. He bets 350. And so I think this guy can have all the bluffs that make sense. You know, Jack 10, 10, 7, 7, 6, 6, 5, all these straight draws. I think he can have a lot of bluffs also that don't really make sense. And so for that reason, 
uh, I think I need to call even though I just have ace high. So I do make the call. He says, you're good. And I table the hand and win. In this last big hand of the day, I yet again have ace king. This time it's ace king of hearts and I'm under the gun and raised to 60. The good German pro, I played the aces hand against calls in the hijack. The cutoff calls, the small blind calls, and our very loose friend in the straddle also makes the call. So we're going five ways to a flop here. There's 305 in the pot, and it comes 8-5 deuce with the 8 and deuce of hearts. And again, I've got ace-king of hearts. So it checks to me, and it's tempting to bet here with a hand this strong. I think one problem with that is that the German pro is going to have a very compressed range that includes a lot of pairs. So I think he has every combination of pocket eights and pocket fives here. And I mostly want to, I, I'm not trying to play a massive pot against him right away. So with two players behind me, including a good player who has a range that interacts very well with this board, I check the German pro does bet $200 and now everyone else calls. So $200, three calls, and now it's back on me. And I'm about $10,000 deep with this German player at this point, and I cannot really stack off with the nut flush draw here. That's one reason to call instead of raise. I think another reason is that I want worse flush draws to continue. If someone else has queen jack of hearts, for example, I want them in there and raising might force them out. I think this is especially a factor when I have ace king of hearts in particular, because I have both the ace and the king of hearts. It's really hard for my opponents to have really strong flush draws. So I want queen jack of hearts in there. I want seven, six of hearts in there. And so for all of those reasons, I think I have to call. So we're off to a very rare five way turn here and it comes the 10 of hearts. So I make the nuts and check it over to the German player who checks, which is unfortunate, but which really doesn't surprise me since he has sets and pairs here a lot. The cutoff checks as well, and we're off to a river. So still 1305 in there, and the river is an offsuit jack. So I still have the nuts, eight, five, deuce, 10, jack with three hearts, and I have ace, king of hearts. Unfortunately, it checks to me. So at this point, I'm thinking, okay, it's pretty hard for anybody in this hand to have a flush. If the German player or the cutoff had a flush, he would have probably bet the turn. If the other two players who I had position on had a flush, they probably would have bet the river. So I think I just need a bet here and I don't really know what anybody can call with, but I have to try. So I bet $800. The German player thinks for a while and then folds. The cutoff player thinks for quite a while and then calls and the other two players fold. So obviously I win this one. So I go pretty card dead for about three hours after that, which is unfortunate, but which happens and still end up with a nice profit of about $3,500 for the day, which feels really good after losing that very big hand early on. Also feels good to play in a very good game and to have that game stay good throughout the day. It's been kind of tricky recently. Um, travel restrictions on Europeans related to the uh, coronavirus were lifted in early November and pretty much every professional poker player in Europe came to LA around that time. So a lot of the games are not so hot right now. So 
good to find a good game to be able to stay in that game for eight hours and grind and good to turn a profit. I've frequently been struck by the consequences of second tier expanding brain poker when watching or listening to educational poker content, especially the kind where players call or email in a hand history and then the host comments on it. The Thinking Poker and Just Hands podcasts frequently do this, and so does Bart Hansen at Crush Life Poker. So let's take a recent hand from Bart Hansen's call-in show as an example. I'm not going to comment much on Hansen's response to this call, which was good. I just think the call itself, which came from a man who was well-spoken and smart, is a good example of the ways certain types of recreational players think. So this guy calls Hansen to tell about a hand he played at 2510. There are two limpers and then the button raises to $90. The hero is in the second blind, so not the last blind, with queen nine of clubs and calls. The other players fold. The flop comes nine three deuce with one club. The caller checks his queen nine of clubs. The button bets 120 into 210 or so, and the hero calls. The turn is the jack of spades, creating a backdoor flush draw. The hero, for some reason, leads for $225 and the villain calls. The river is the six of hearts for a final board of nine, three, deuce, jack, six. The hero checks, the villain bets 400, and the hero raises to 950. By the way, uh, before we go on here, a shout out to my friend Tony DeNovi, who recently told me that when Canadian poker players share a hand history like this, they don't call the opponent villain. Instead, they call them buddy, as in we lead out for 225 and buddy calls. That's maybe the most Canadian thing I've ever heard. So anyway, most of this, as Hansen gently points out, is bad poker. The turn lead makes no sense, and the hero probably wouldn't have led the turn with a hand in the middle of his range like this if he followed the convention of checking to an opponent who had position and was the aggressor on the previous round of betting. There are times when leading the turn is appropriate. For example, when we're in the big blind and call a bet on the flop, and then the middle card pairs on the turn. But these situations are relatively rare, and if we haven't studied them specifically, it's fine just to check. It saves us a bunch of mental energy, and it's far better than the option the hero actually chose. The hero's play on the river makes very little sense, as Hansen points out. The hero shouldn't ever be in this situation, but once he gets here, his hand might actually be good enough to call a bet of 400. Once he instead raises, it's likely the villain will mostly just call with better hands than queen nine, and fold hands that are worse a sure sign that a river bet or raise is a bad idea. But let's go back to preflop. This all could have been avoided if Hero had simply folded his queen nine to the $90 raise. The reasons are pretty simple. Hero is out of position and isn't even the largest blind, and he's facing a huge raise to $90, effectively nine big blinds. The button's raise isn't even a standard button open since it's over two limpers and it's quite large, so the button should be relatively strong, and Hero should play tighter from the second blind in response. Even in a regular two-blind game with no limpers and a regular-sized button open to three big blinds, if we're in the small blind, Queen-9 suited is one of the worst hands that's worth continuing with. No one has a chart for this exact situation, but this kind of spot is common in live poker. I'd almost always fold hands as strong as queen-10 suited, ace-9 suited, or pocket-7s here, so the range of hands I'd proceed with would be quite strong. Not only is playing queen-9 suited unprofitable, but it's hard, 
And I'd rather just avoid situations that are hard, especially if they aren't very profitable or I don't know how profitable they are. Anyway, I won't share the result of the hand with you. You'll have to head over to Bart's YouTube channel for that. I'll put a link in the description. I don't teach poker because, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, I both feel a little underqualified and it would be hard for a potential student and I to find a price that works for us both. But if a student came to me with a hand like this, I don't think we'd even end up discussing what happened post-flop. Instead, the student would explain what happened pre-flop and then I'd say, time out and take out some pre-flop charts and that's what we would discuss for the rest of the day. The single best way to get better at poker is to build a strong foundation, and succeeding in the game is nearly impossible without one. Now, there's maybe a fourth tier down on this meme, the one where the brain is shooting light all over the place, where you're such a good exploitative player that you're deviating from the path at almost every decision point and winning more money. There are situations where you should play queen nine suited in the second blind when there are two limpers and the button raises to nine big blinds. Maybe, for example, both limpers and the raiser play literally every hand and play incredibly weakly post-flop. In that case, continuing with queen nine suited, probably by re-raising, but maybe also by calling, might be more profitable than folding. As a default though, folding this hand is the right play, and a player whose calling is almost certainly losing money all over the place pre-flop. Poker training materials, and I'm not talking about Hanson here, I'm just speaking generally, frequently wave these sorts of mistakes away rather than honing in on them, and thereby do their subscribers or listeners or viewers or whatever an enormous disservice. Now, there are places this tier concept breaks down. The third tier basically is have a good baseline strategy, but if my strategy is good and someone else's is better, they'll probably beat me over time, probably by playing more precisely and also by finding lines that are both good and unusual, knowing that I won't respond well to tricks I haven't seen before. My argument here probably also sounds a little like the familiar GTO or Game Theory Optimal versus Exploitative argument in poker, and it probably sounds like I'm taking the GTO side. But I have no real desire to get into that debate. I don't aim to play purely theoretically optimally in live poker at all. For example, any live poker preflop chart will correctly tell you to open hands that aren't actually theoretically optimal, and any live poker strategy that doesn't include folding more than optimal on the river probably isn't very good. I even think there could be space for strategies that are based primarily on systematically examining the tendencies of a player pool and building a strategy from scratch in response. Poker Detox, I believe, basically does something like this. I mostly play live, and live poker is very difficult to systematically examine, so I've never used Poker Detox or any similar program and can't comment on how good it is. So I'm arguing for a good baseline strategy, but I guess I'm not saying play GTO. I'm mostly only saying that there are tremendous benefits to showing up to the poker table with a good idea what you're going to do and why. The third tier is a good place to be. Recognize that poker is probably too complicated to figure out in real time, on your own, and show up to the table with a plan. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. 